Welcome to the Brute Facts Podcast with your host and everybody's favorite Christian, Eddie Kroon. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell for future content. Welcome to Brute Facts Podcast. Man, I love that intro. Pasta Mike is, uh, he's a beast, man. I love it. Thank you so much, Pasta. Appreciate that. Um, so I got a good guest tonight, as usual. Um, this happens to be a friend of mine who uh, was an inspiration for me, actually. And his name is Clinton Wilcox. And he is into what's called bioethics. Uh, which includes not just uh, pro-life and pro-choice arguments, uh, but even the end of life. And um, he is with Life Training Institute, which is a fantastic organization, has a lot of material for people in the, on the pro-life side that's looking for good arguments, good resources, uh, I, th- I believe uh, Scott Klusendorf is one of the main guys over there. And he, in my opinion, is pretty brilliant, uh, like a lot of his work, for sure. And I met Clinton on uh, Facebook years ago, and we've kind of talked over the years. And I was always really into, you know, uh, pro-life. I've always been a staunch pro-life person. And really didn't know where to go to get the academic stuff. And so I've kind of leaned on him a bit over the years with recommendations and um, actually some of his writings. He publishes things at different sites around the Internet. Uh, He has a lot of his own work that he does. He teaches uh, logic. He is a pretty smart cat. He's a Christian, too. So that's uh, two points for our team. But uh, anyway, I am going to bring him on. He is sitting back there wondering what's taking so long and why I keep talking. So he's the star of the show. It's time to let him go. How you doing, Clinton? Hey, Eddie, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get uh, you're, you're a Christian? You have. Have you been a Christian your whole life, pretty much, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, before we go, I just want to kind of apologize for my setup here. I recently moved out of state, and so I, I'm still getting my setup uh, positioned. So right now, it looks like I'm not looking at the camera, but I'm actually looking right at my laptop to see you. <laughs> and my my the webcam I have set up is right there. So if I look at it, I, I can only see you right out of the corner of my eye, which is a little awkward to talk to. So apologize yeah. if it looks like I'm not looking at you. I, I actually am looking right at my laptop. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's unacceptable. No, uh, I'm sorry. That's fantastic. Hey, trust me. We've had worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just take it out of my stipend at the end. That's fine. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but yeah, I've been a a Christian uh, all my life. You know, basically came out of the womb holding a Bible. Uh, Actually, when I was four years old, I attended vacation Bible school at my my, little Baptist church in uh, Madera, California. Uh, And 
you know, I, I accepted Christ while I was there. And of course, four years old is kind of young, but, uh, you know, I, I stuck with it my entire life. So, you know, whether you, whether you think my conversion experience happened right there when I accepted Christ at four years old, or if it was a more, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess, uh, more of a you know process and happened later on, either way, you know, I, I've basically been in the church my entire life since I was at least four years old. So. Okay, sweet. Yeah, there's um, a lot of people uh, get saved at a lot of different ages, and it's it's weird because I know lots of people who were saved at a really young age. That people would be, you know, how, how did you do that? How do you know, how does that work? But it's right. it, it, there's such a maturing process there that uh, you know, even if you right. weren't or whatever, at some point you were come along the way. So how did you get into um, pro life and wanting? You know, so I mean, I understand why somebody wanted to defend it, but you know, so ardently with the academic work. Yeah, well, uh, it's a little bit of a long story. Um, I was actually, uh, I was actually going to college for a music education degree, and I, I kind of got um, sidetracked into pro life work after I'd gotten out of high school. I went to college, and uh, you know, I took a public speaking class, and. In that public speaking class, one of my speeches had to be on a controversial topic, and the topic I chose was just kind of out of thin air. But I chose the topic of abortion, and you had to present the 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 uh, position in such a way that the people listening couldn't tell which side of the aisle you came down on. So you actually had to present the the arguments for and against in a way that was balanced, so that you, your own position didn't come through. Um, so. As I studied the, the the topic of abortion, I started to actually realize what abortion was. You know, like I said, I've been a Christian all my life, so you know, I, I would have been pro life, but it was nothing, never something that ever impacted me. Never got anyone pregnant in high school. Uh, you know, I never really knew, knew anyone who told me that they'd ever had an abortion or anything like that. Never knew anyone going through that kind of situation. So it was just something I'd never really thought about. But when I actually started studying the topic for this speech and started looking at the arguments for and against, I came to realize that the, the weight of the arguments it's not even close. The weight of the arguments come down on the pro-life side, especially when you start looking at the science of embryology and you start looking at, you know, just the whole developmental process. And, you know, as far as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's, it's just, you know, there's a, an avalanche of evidence on the pro-life side compared to the pro-choice side. And so my, my older sister knew that I was interested in, in, doing more on the abortion issue, like getting involved in it. And so uh, our, our, one of our local pro-life apologists, whose name is Josh Brom, who may be familiar to some of your audience if they're, if they do much reading or studying in the pro-life issue. I believe he I've leads, heard the name before. I'm not yeah, sure though. He's, he's the uh, director of Equal Rights Institute right now, but oh, he used to okay. work. Yeah. Yeah, he used to work for Right to Life of Central California, which is our local Right to Life organization. And he was heading up the local 40 Days for Life. So my sister took me down to meet him and introduced me to him. And nothing happened for about a year or so, but then we actually became friends and he actually started mentoring me in the pro-life movement. And so oh, he wow. took me through a program they were doing called Justice for All, which uh, was led at the time by David Lee, but uh, Stephen Wagner is the director of it now after David Lee uh, left. And so I, I went through the program a few times and then uh, indicated that I was interested in becoming a 
a, a mentor through the organization. And then eventually I became a speaker through them as well. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, I started publishing articles on various pro-life blogs like Secular Pro-Life. Uh, I got some articles picked up at National Pro-Life Committee, uh, Life News, Life Site News, other sites like that. And through the articles that I published, I got the attention of Scott Klusenorth, who, as you mentioned, is the director of Life Training Institute, one of the uh, one, one of the best uh, pro-life educators educational organizations. And Scott himself is probably the leading uh, American speaker on uh, on the pro-life issue. He's, he's you know, the go-to guy if you want the best of the best, essentially. And uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah sorry, I got go to ahead. my church. I was okay. So I, I got to my church one day because I, you know, I led the contemporary worship band there, got to my church and uh, fired up the computer so I could check my messages on Facebook and got a message from Scott out of the blue. And he said, hey, do you work for any pro-life organizations? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, would you like to come work for LTI? And uh, that's how I got involved there. Rock on. Yeah, that's uh, got in there with the heavyweights on that one. That's So I actually yeah. had read quite a few of your articles on Secular Pro-Life and didn't even realize it was you. And then oh. I realized later, I'd say, well, I'd run across a real old article. And it just happened to have your name just right there at the bottom of it. And I was like, well, hey, there, what? that's Clinton, you know. So and what I like about it is and this is, you know, a lot of people think that um, to be a theist and be pro-life, that your arguments are based on God. And it's that's just not true at all. I mean, of course, we can go back and talk about, you know, the, the value of human life and human beings and things of that nature on a theistic worldview. But um yeah. The arguments themselves, you know, um, and like you said, I, I'm with you all the way. I just I'm sure there's a lot of pro-choice people who disagree, but I, I just I don't see um, really, in my opinion, and I don't mean to be flippant about it, but I don't see any that are compelling to me at all. Uh, I think there's an enormous amount mm. on the pro-life side. Um, so what would you say would be? your first your favorite pro-life and then the most powerful pro-choice yeah uh in fact i i would tell people that you can certainly make a religious argument against abortion i mm -hmm. i'm at home you know, talking about God and the Bible, if we want to, if I'm talking to a Christian believer. Um, but most of the people I talk to are not Christians. And so they don't hold the Bible up as an authority. So I prefer to use arguments that uh, that come from authorities that non-religious people respect, science and philosophy. And that way, even if I'm talking to a Christian, uh, you know, I'll have other arguments that I can present to them too, things that I don't necessarily need to rely on the Bible. Because even pro-choice Christians will say, well, you, you know, you can't just make, uh, you know, make legal policy based on scripture um you know so even then science and philosophy usually come in really handy as well so when it comes to my favorite uh pro-life argument and there there are there are a lot that are that are good arguments that i think justify the pro-life position uh but my favorite argument would be the argument for my identity and this is an argument that i that I, actually uh, you may be familiar with the name alex Proust. oh yes yes I, a lot of his stuff in philosophy 
Okay, cool. Yeah, he, he's a brilliant uh, Christian philosopher, but he actually has written some things on the pro-life position, and he he wrote he constructed an argument called the argument from identity. Another pro-life uh, philosopher named Stephen Napier I've seen has formulated a similar argument too, and I think he calls it something different. But uh, I prefer just argument from identity because that just kind of tells you what it is, and um, you know, really uh, just kind of explains it in the name what kind of an argument it is. And the argument essentially goes like this: that you know, I'm alive today. That's uncontroversial. Uh, and so the question is, did I come from the fetus that was in my mother's womb, the one that was conceived and eventually grew up into me? Am I identical to the fetus that, that was in that womb, or am I not identical to that fetus? Well, it seems like there are only three possibilities. Either I am not identical to the fetus that was in my mother's womb, uh, number two, I am identical to the fetus that was in my mother's womb, but the fetus died at some point. Or number three, that I am identical to the fetus that was in my mother's womb, and that fetus is still alive. Well, uh, it doesn't seem plausible that uh, that I am identical, that I am not identical to the fetus that was in my mother's womb, uh, because if that's the case, then when I came into existence at some point, uh, you know, like when when that fetus was suddenly able to engage in higher rational thought, be conscious and self-aware, things like that. Well, it seems like there would be two uh, physical entities uh, occupying the same spot because I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a, and, and, you know, I'm a, a biological being and that fetus is a biological being. So if I'm not identical to the fetus and there are two individuals occupying the same position in space, but that of course violates a rule of physics that two physical things cannot occupy the same space uh, at the same time. So, uh, so that, uh, that seems like that's, that uh, that position won't work. That just because it leads to a contradiction. It violates a, a law of physics, an established law of physics. So uh, so it's not the case that I'm not identical to the fetus that was in my mother's womb. But what about the position that I am identical to the fetus that was in my mother's womb, but the fetus died at some point? Well. Um, that also doesn't seem plausible because in that case uh, the fetus would have died by undergoing uh, by undergoing processes that were within its underlying uh, its underlying programming to undergo. You know, it, it died once it reached the state in which it was able to become conscious or self-aware. At which point, I took over. But the thing is that. Uh, things, especially organisms, don't die by undergoing processes that are within their internal programming to undergo. So it's just not plausible that uh, that I could be identical with the fetus that's in my mother's womb, but the fetus died at some point. Uh, and, so, uh, and so the third possibility is I am identical to the fetus that was in my mother's womb, but the fetus is still alive. Um, and uh, that seems like the only plausible, uh, the only plausible alternative alternative is that uh, I am identical to that fetus that was in my mother's womb. Uh, so uh, that's just kind of a, a, a short way of explaining it. There's a lot, you know, a lot deeper you can go into, but I was trying to keep it, you know, short and simple for the podcast here. So yeah, so the, so the only plausible uh, explanation is that I am identical to the fetus that was in my mother's womb and the fetus is still alive. You know, the fetus grew up into me. So uh, yeah. And that, that that's, I think is... Actually- I'm sorry. Yeah, the I was going to say that's actually kind of a sim- simplified version. You know, I'll, I'll ask people sometimes I'll be, you know, yeah. when did you start becoming you? At what point were you you or was there ever a point that you weren't you? Because to me, I think that kind of really draws out, you know, how identity seems to be, you know, this fluent uh, part of us that just, you know, it, over time it, it, there's. I don't understand how 
you know, you can be this, you can be a at this point, um, but not a at some point prior to that. You know, it just doesn't uh, doesn't make sense to me. So the and that was Alexander Prusas, right? Yeah. Yeah. He wrote an article called uh, I Was Once a Fetus. Uh, right. colon, an identity-based argument against abortion. And, it, you know, like I said, it, it goes a lot more, a lot deeper and a lot more complex than that. Um, you know, so, so this right. is really an argument that's meant to convince, you know, like academic philosophers, that kind of thing. But I also think right. it's the best argument to show that the pro-life position is true. Uh, there are other arguments that I might use when I'm talking to a pro-choice person who doesn't have any sort of philosophical training, because there are certainly simpler arguments that are easier to understand, which I think also do the job of refuting the pro-choice position and uh, defending the pro-life position. But I think the argument for identity is probably one of the best that, that there are for the pro-life position. One of the ones I like to use a lot um, is, you know, a lot of people for some reason want to separate personhood from, mm -hmm. you know, a human organism. And I, I don't even grant that. I reject that right outright because I don't think that you can separate personhood from a human being. Um, so one of the mm. issues that I think, in my opinion, that is huge about it is, um, you know, the arbitrariness of trying to find, because if you boil it all down, conception is the most it's the least arbitrary um, position for when human beings begin. And it's almost like the only demarcation that you can get um, would be, you know, even though it's not like an immediate thing, it's still, you know, far more of a demarcation because you, any pro-choice people that you ask when a person that used the personhood is when a person begins to be a person, almost all of them have a different answer. And then a lot, yeah. they base it on accidental properties, like there has to be at least the brain forming or things like this because of consciousness. And it just causes so many issues like the episodic problem and all these other issues where you have all these ad hoc rationalizations that you have to add now. So like when someone goes in a coma, you know, or when you go to sleep or you know, things of that nature. So mm -hmm. I have interacted with the yeah. identity argument, um, mm -hmm. but I haven't spent a whole lot of time on it. So I'm glad you reminded me about Proust because uh, I've read quite a few of his pro-life stuff and he's fantastic. Yeah. He is. Yeah. And so you also asked me what you think is the most powerful pro-choice argument. And, you know, there are a wide range of pro-choice arguments and, you know, some are obviously better than others. Um, you know, th there are a lot of arguments that are just, you know, fallacious and a lot of them that just don't, uh, especially, you know, they basically ignore the question of whether or not the fetus is a person. Uh, because if, if the fetus is a person, most pro-choice arguments don't work. Like even bodily rights arguments fail if the fetus is a person. So, you know, for example, uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist argument is usually uh, it, that's usually the go-to argument for most lay pro-choice people because, you know, anyone who's just taken a, a you know, first-year philosophy class has come across the violinist argument by Judith Jarvis Thompson. So, uh, you know, that, that's, the, that's the one academic argument uh, street-level pro-choice people are going to have heard at the very least. Um, but the thing is that, you know, 
yeah, you know, we have a right to bodily autonomy and integrity, but not at the expense of other people's lives. You know, so if the fetus is a person, then bodily rights does not justify abortion. And now Judith Jarvis Thompson was trying to argue that abortion is justified if the fetus is a person, but she failed miserably in, in justifying that. And even pro-choice thinkers like Michael Tooley and Kate Greasley have have essentially stated, yeah, you know, bodily rights doesn't justify abortion if the fetus is a person because, uh, you know, like, like they like they often say, my rights end where your nose begins. You know, my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. And so, you know, you can exercise your rights, but not at the expense of other people. So, uh, so yeah, I on think, that note, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. I mean, to cut you off, but I, I wanted to make a a, a quick uh, point about here or, or get your uh, opinion on it. So on that note, I've heard it said, you know, by pro-choicers who take the personhood argument that if it is a person at any point and we deem it a person, then it, it, you can't kill the fetus because the con Constitution specifically protects persons. So I'd heard that from several of them. And it sounded, you know, I guess, OK, if it, you know. Of course, you know as well as I do that it does, never defines what a person is. But if it protects well, persons, no, it never it never defines what a person is. But it doesn't have to because it assumes what a person is. Right. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's a little bit of a of a you know. There's a lot you could say about the constitutionality of it, but you know, Roe v. Wade was an unconstitutional decision because the Constitution quite clearly uh, rejects abortion out of hand you know the founders uh never thought abortion was something that should be legal uh you know uh, you know past the point of quickening because back then uh science discovered in the in the mid 1800s that life begins a fertilization but back when the united states was first around they believed it was quickening because that was the point at which the woman could feel right. the child moving uh so that's when she could know for a fact that it was alive uh, it was so yeah so around. i'm sorry i, well, I yeah, said it was terrible you know, the, all the way around well, it was. I mean, it was based in bad philosophy. It was based in bad, uh, bad jurisprudence. It was based in a terrible understanding of the Constitution. Uh, but you know, that that's a you know that's a whole episode we could do <laughs> right there too. Yeah. yeah but uh, one of the most common arguments is that the Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah, one of the most common arguments is that the Fourteenth Amendment uh, justifies abortion because it says uh, you know you have to be born or naturalized to be a person. But that's not what it says at all. If you actually read the Fourteenth Amendment for yourself, the language is quite clear that any person born or naturalized in the United States is a U.S. citizen. So being born or naturalized is about being a citizen, not about being a person. In fact, it assumes that being born is something that happens to a person. It implicitly assumes personhood of the unborn. So the Fourteenth Amendment, which was actually ratified, uh, oh, are you still there, Eddie? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry, I was. Bringing oh. a screen up. <laughs> okay, no problem. I, I just I, I lost you for a moment. I want to make sure I didn't get disconnected. <laughs> okay, yeah, I just want to make sure I didn't get disconnected because I lost your your video feed okay. there. Um, but yeah, so the Fourteenth Amendment, which was ratified to grant rights to Black people, it's absurd to think that the Supreme Court would actually use that same amendment to then uh, deny rights to the unborn. Uh, so yeah, so Roe v. Wade was just an absurd, uh, unconstitutional decision all the way around. Uh, and even pro-choice thinkers uh, back when Roe v. Wade was was decided on were critical of the decision because it was such a it was such a such a badly ruled, uh, uh, you know, case. So yeah, but again, you know, there's a lot to say on that. 
yeah. But yeah, uh, Roe v. Wade was a terribly uh, unconstitutional decision. You know, we should not be denying rights to human beings. You know, that that's why we had slavery. That's why uh, the Holocaust went on. You know, that's why the Cambodian and genocide happened because a person that was denied to actual human beings. And so, you know, there's absolutely no reason to think that here in the 21st century, uh, now we finally got it right when we're denying rights to human beings. Uh, it's just no, you know, that's just absurd to think that, that now of all times we we finally have it right instead of we're just making another uh, extreme blunder in denying rights to human yeah, individuals. I would, yeah. I'd like to bring up a point on that, but I'm going to let you, uh, with your favorite, I mean, the, the most powerful pro-choice, but after that, I want to say yeah. a point on that, so, too. Okay, so yeah, so I wanted to bring that thing up about bodily rights, because it's it's emotionally powerful, but logically, it doesn't work. Uh, and, it, you know, it, um, it, it especially doesn't work if the fetus is a person, uh, contra what Thompson was trying to argue. So, you know, arguments from personhood, trying to deny personhood to the unborn, uh, there's, there's stronger arguments, but uh, I, I don't think, because, you know, I, I think that you know, there's a lot of reasons to reject those kinds of arguments, um, not just because I think they're wrong or wrongheaded, but also because, you know, like I said, we, we have no way of knowing if we're actually right now in denying rights to a certain group of, of human beings. So I think just I think uh, it behooves us to err on the side of caution when trying to apply rights to certain individuals or take them away. So I think probably the strongest, in my opinion, the strongest pro-choice argument, I think, would be the argument from sentience. And this is an argument that Wayne Sumner makes in his book, Abortion and Abortion and Moral Theory, I think is what it's called. And you know, sentience is, uh, means that the individual is able to, to have feelings, and specifically the ability to feel pain. So he says that, you know, what matters is not what species you are. It's not that you're human or that you're some other species. What matters is your capacity to suffer. And so if you can suffer, then then I have an obligation not to, not to harm you or not to mistreat you. And so uh, because the unborn don't feel pain, uh, you know, early in pregnancy and they do feel pain later in pregnancy, uh, abortion should be completely unrestricted in the early early part of pregnancy, like the first first tri first trimester and a half or so. And then at, during the late trimester, like the third trimester, uh, abortion is a lot harder to justify at that point. Uh, and so then that's because the unborn can, uh, can most likely feel pain at that point. And so, uh, and so I, I think this is probably, the, one, in my opinion, the strongest pro-choice argument, because number one, uh, it, it's at least grounded in in something that's plausible, you know, it's plausible to think that if you can suffer, that grounds an obligation for me not to harm you. So that's at least a plausible way to ground my obligations towards someone, I think. And number two, it also accounts for the the uh, intuition that even pro-choice people have that abortion uh, is, should be unrestricted in, in uh, the first trimester of pregnancy, but then gets harder to justify as you go later in pregnancy. Because uh, Gallup polls have actually shown that even among pro-choice people, the majority of Americans uh, believe that abortion should be Ill illegal in most cases in the third trimester. So even pro-choice people, the, the average pro-choice pe person does not believe abortion is permissible in the third trimester. So uh, Sumner's argument from sentience, I think, also quite well explains this intuition that even pro-choice people have, that abortion gets harder to justify the later in pregnancy it gets. And so those are a couple of reasons why I believe that uh, Wayne Sumner's sentience argument is actually one of the strongest to justify abortion. Okay. Yeah, definitely. The uh, point I was, one of the points I wanted to make was that it seems like the only time, or at least in the majority of cases, 
that we want to strip a certain group of human beings from the status of personhood or lesser persons is to, in some kind of way, oppress them or outright kill them. And it seems, you know, so when we start defining what a person is outside of being uh, an offspring of, you know, human organisms, you know, it's we, we I think that the pro-life position, not only because of the arguments, but because it protects the largest number of human organisms um, that, that we have, you know, it's it's it doesn't uh, discriminate you know, against certain individuals, you know, of the human right. species. So. Yeah. And this is a point that Frank Beckwith makes in his book, Defending Life, too, is that is that the pro-life position is the inclusive position, uh, you know, because we, we believe that all human beings are valuable and deserving of, of rights, whereas the pro-choice position is exclusive. Only people who are relevantly like me deserve rights. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's a valid, uh, valid observation, too. Yeah, so um, with, well, let's go ahead. So I know I've got probably a few people that are in the chat who's not, you know, too familiar with a lot of these different back and forths on the pro-choice and pro-life. And I, and sadly, I keep hearing today about the, um, fire in the laboratory with, uh, you know, the Petri dishes or, you know, fertilized <laughs> eggs. You say, yeah. so go, go ahead and destroy that for me. <laughs> uh, so you, you want me to respond to the, uh, the embryo rescue case? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yes. Ter terrible reasoning. Okay. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, here's the thing. It's actually, I mean, depending on how you use it, uh, it's actually a valuable thought experiment. It's not yeah. valuable if you're trying to justify abortion, though. <laughs> so um, so essentially the embryo rescue case or, you know, I, I've called it the burning IVF facility. But that's one of the problems in philosophy is that no one calls you know, one thing, the same thing. So you could have like, you could read like four or five different names for it. And you kind of have to keep track of like what everything means. Like, okay, you, you, you know, like uh, the, the position that we, we were talking about where if you don't have some property, uh, you, you're not a person. You know, I've seen that referred to as functionalism. I've heard that referred to as the anti-equality position. You know, I've heard it referred to as a lot of different things. You kind of have to keep them all straight. Uh, but uh, the burning IVF facility, I've heard also called the embryo rescue case. And that essentially goes like that. Uh, you got like, this you're you're you find yourself in a fertility clinic and a fire breaks out um you know most of the people have evacuated already but you find yourself in there and uh there, there are two rooms uh in and you're, you're only going to be able to access one to save whatever's inside and so in one room there is a two-year-old child you know two-year-old born child and in the other room is a vial of embryos. And, you know, the, the number differs based on how much of a monster the pro-choice person wants to make you out to be. Uh, they, might say there's 10, they might say there's 10 embryos. They might say 100. They might say 1,000. You know, so just however many embryos are in that vial, you know, choose whatever number you want. Uh, and, and they say, so if you, you know, mo most people are, you know, a right-thinking individual will go and save the two-year-old born child um, because that's just what people would do. If you're going to run in and, you know, save the, uh, save the vial of embryos uh if you know if you really believe 
that uh, that one life is equal to one life, then you then you would be obligated to run in and save the vial of embryos, the ten embryos or a thousand or whatever. But we know that most people are all right-thinking individuals would save the two-year-old child, and so that proves that human life is not equal because you would save the toddler over the vial of embryos. And that's sort of the dilemma that they've uh, that they've kind of leveled upon us. And now there are a, a number of responses that I can give to this, but probably the most basic one is that this thought experiment does not uh, does not investigate who we can kill. This thought experiment investigates who we should save in a particular situation. So you know, suppose I do believe I should run in and save the ten the vial of ten embryos. How does it then follow that the toddler is not a valuable human being, or that I think that we should be able to kill the toddler? Uh, to you know, to benefit someone else. Well, that just doesn't follow. So the the embryo rescue case is really about who we should save, not about who we should kill. So while it's a valuable thought experiment to you know to investigate, like okay, you know, what we think of human value, or you know, if we would save the toddler, like why is that? Why would we, you know, go for the toddler instead? Of the embryos. These are all important questions to ponder, but it certainly doesn't follow that if I go in and save the vial of embryos that I then believe that we ought to be able to kill the toddler for any reason, or that I don't think the toddler is a valuable human person. So, so, the, 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 so the thought experiment here is used poorly if you're trying to justify abortion with it. But you know, I, I could also give an answer to the question and that, you know, number one, I, I think it's entirely plausible we can consider at least one person who might run in and save the vial of embryos. For example, what if the person stuck in the burning IVF clinic uh, is, is uh, you know, is a scientist who conceived these embryos, but what if he's the father of these embryos? Well, then you might think, well, yeah, you know, I need to run in and save these embryos because I'm going to implant them and, you know, they're going to be born and that kind of thing. Uh, or a, a pro-life person might actually run in and save the toddler uh, and there's a couple things we can say about that is that number one, uh, in this situation, you're probably not going to be thinking logically. You're going to be thinking emotionally. So even though you have a bigger emotional connection with the toddler and not with the embryos, that might cause you to run in and save the toddler. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're being inconsistent. It just means that uh, under pressure, you made a decision which you probably wouldn't have made if you had the time to really reason through and think logically about it. But there are other reasons which a pro-life person might actually be justified to run in and save the toddler. And that number one, you have no idea what's going to happen to those embryos. They might actually just be earmarked for for scientific uh, 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 experimentation. You know, they might be going to be destroyed. For for their stem cells or something, uh, you know, and, and even if they were going to be implanted inside a woman, there's there's no one hundred percent guarantee that they're going to take and that they're going to survive to 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 the time of birth. The uh, the toddler, you know, has a one hundred percent chance of survival. So, uh, and not only that, if you were to save the embryos, you know that the toddler would die horribly in the fire because he's at a point where he's able to feel pain and. Uh, so he's going to suffer when he dies, whereas the embryos won't. So there are actually a number of reasons why a pro-life person might go in and save the toddler and consider himself justified in doing so. And then, you know, there are a number of different ways you can adjust the thought experiment, you know, to show who you would save in certain cases. But again, it just all boils down to it's not it's not a thought experiment to decide who we can kill. It's just a thought experiment to investigate who we should save and under what circumstances. Right. Yeah. And that's that's kind of one of the points that, you know, I, I make sure I hammer home is. Uh, we're making value judgments, you know, I mean, value judgments based on the ability for survival, you know, so just because, well, let me take that back, not value judgments. We're making judgments on uh, which is most likely to survive, 
you know, so it doesn't mean that the uh, mm. fertilized eggs, the embryos, they're not, it doesn't mean they don't have value, you know, and it doesn't follow that um, because we can't save all of them that, like you said, we're justified in killing them. I mean, we're literally trying to, it's, it's like the trolley problem. I mean, you, there's not a good, yeah. you know, there's not a perfect way to do it. We're just, we're going to try to save the ones we can. Same thing, you run into a building and you got a 90-year-old person you're going to have to carry, or you got a toddler a little, or a or, or young child further away who can run, you know, you're going to have to go with, get the child uh, so that the child can at least try to run mm -hmm. out. And hopefully you got time to get the older person that you're going to have to carry. It, it's not that that older person no longer has value. Yeah. doesn't mean we're not justified. I mean, it doesn't mean we're justified in killing them. We just have to mm -hmm. make those split second decisions, you know, uh, and who's going, who has the best survivability, you know, out of the situation. So the, uh, the next one would be one of the yeah, points and, that I bring up. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. We must have a delay. Oh, no, it's fine. I was just going to say, yeah, I think so. Like, you know, like a five-second delay or something, it sounds like. Um, but, yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, the the embryo rescue case is actually uh, is actually weaker than the trolley case. Because in the trolley case, if you switch the track, you're directly responsible for killing uh, the, one per the one person to save the five. Uh, whereas in the embryo rescue case, you're not responsible for anyone's death. Uh, because, you know, except in some, you know, ex except in some... Uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the term would be, but uh, you know, like a, a very, very low proximate sense in that, you know, you're responsible for the person's death because you didn't save them, but you're not directly responsible for that person's death like you would be in the in the trolley problem. Yeah. So uh, in other cases, or or this is one of, you know, I've heard some crazy scenarios where it, it's almost like they try well, to... actually. Um, if you don't mind, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just thought uh, thought this might actually be interest, an interesting yeah, tidbit yeah, to your listeners. Is that, uh, yeah. is that the trolley problem was actually formulated by a pro-life philosopher named Philip Afoot. Uh, it was formulated by her to investigate double effect reasoning that some pro-life people uh, used when trying to justify life-saving abortions. So, uh, you know, that, that's a little wow. interesting tidbit that I learned a few years ago. So, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I, I had no idea. That's That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so appreciate that. Yeah. So when they come yeah. up with these crazy scenarios, uh, you know, because they seem to, they try to get an analogy as close as possible to a fetus, you know, and just, you can't get there without talking about a fetus. And so they're like, you know, you cause a wreck and, and you hurt somebody and they need a kid and all this stuff. And I'm like, um, the diff one of the major differences is, I'd like to get your opinion on this take. Um, and this is not mine. This is one I heard from someone else was, you know, when, when you have a fetus, you had, you have created, you have forced dependency on someone, you know, as opposed to in, in just about any other scenario or every, uh, any other scenario I've heard, uh, you haven't forced dependency on you, especially against their will. You know, because the fetus, the person doesn't have a say uh, in being brought into the world or being created or any of this and obviously can't make it, you know, on their own. So you have forced them into this situation and forced them dependent on you. 
So all these other analogies seem to break down because, you know, how do you get to a situation in an analogy where you're actually forcing dependency on someone other than like a fetus situation? Yeah. In fact, that's what Judith Jarvis Thompson was trying to do with her violinist scenario. She wanted to make the scenario as like pregnancy as she could. And so, you know, there's this violinist who's suffering from a kidney ailment and the Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all available donors and found that you're the only available match. So they kidnap you and plug you into his kidney, and now you're there in the hospital room, fil you know, filtering his blood through your kidney, and you need to be, you need to remain there, plugged in for nine months in order to, in order for this, uh, this violinist to heal. And so, yeah, you know, the responsibility objection is the objection that you were essentially raising is that, you know, and this is the, this is sort of, this is, uh, I, I view this as a defeater of these, uh, of these, you know, violinist type arguments. Uh, but it, it's not as strong as it could be because obviously they don't apply in the case of rape. Uh, so you need a you need a second argument to go on on top of that, which I'll oh you know, which yes. I'll say. In a few yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah so the responsibility objection, of course, is that uh, you know with the violinist, you are not responsible for the kidney ailment that the violinist uh, has, and so you do not have a moral responsibility to be plugged into that violinist and filter your blood through his kidneys. If you remain plugged in, that's a super erogatory act, or a uh, you know you're going above and beyond the call of duty. That's essentially a you know a heroic, morally heroic act, we would call it. But wow. you don't have an obligation to remain plugged into that violinist. Uh, now there are a number of disanalogies between the violinist scenario and pregnancy. That's the problem: is that pregnancy is such a unique situation that there's really nothing you can come up with to analogize properly properly to pregnancy. Even the violinist breaks down in, in, in uh, key ways, you know, so, and one, one of those ways is the responsibility. And, and when a woman finds herself pregnant, she is responsible for the creation of the, of the fetus. And she's responsible for placing that fetus in a state of dependence upon her because those two, because she's responsible for those two things, she owes the fetus. Um, uh, she, she owes the fetus. Um, oh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, well, there's a word I'm looking for, but I'm blanking on it. But basically, <laughs> the idea is yeah. that she owes the fetus, uh, you know, proper care. She she she, yeah. she owes the fetus the use of her body in order to keep the fetus alive because that is the natural state of pregnancy, and she's the one who engaged in an act that created the fetus and placed the fetus in a state of dependence upon her. So so she she owes that to the fetus. The fetus has a natural right to that. Uh, now, of course, there's the case of rape, in in which case a woman did not engage in an act that caused the creation and state of dependence of the fetus. Uh, it, it but also. When, when a pro-life person says that a woman should not be able to abort in that situation, uh, the, the pro-life the pro person is not trying to force dependence on the woman. The rapist did that. So when, so when we talk about abortions in the case of rape, it's a very, very terrible, very tragic situation, one that we need to be very careful with because we don't want people to think that we're uncaring about that kind of situation. We do care about women who've, who've been raped. Uh, you know, they should be referred to for, for the proper counseling. In fact, uh, Warren Hearn, a, a late-term abortion provider, uh, wrote one of the most used textbooks on abortion. He actually says that if a woman is raped, uh, she's not going to be helped by the, by the abortion clinic setting. She needs to be referred for proper counseling. Now, of course, he thinks that you should do an abortion if she wants one if she's been raped, but the abortion itself is not going to help a rape victim. She needs to be uh, 
referred to for proper counseling for that. And of course, since I'm pro-life, I would take it even further and I would say, you know, yeah, uh, you know, she's not going to be helped by the abortion, but there are other reasons why she shouldn't have an abortion too. Like she's going to compound one act of violence, the abortion, on top of another, the rape. And uh, oftentimes when we, when we hear women give a testimony about uh, having an abortion when she was raped, uh, oftentimes we hear that the abortion was worse than the rape uh, because this was an act of violence that she consented to. She, couldn't, she didn't consent to the rape, but she consented to the abortion, which means that now she was responsible for an act of violence on this fetus uh, just because of the act of violence that was perpetrated on her. So, uh, so there are a lot of reasons why we should actually say, you know, we don't think an abortion will be the best thing for you. Uh, so I, I think it would help the woman in that situation to prevent her from having an abortion. But also there's just the aspect of, you know, it, it's very unfortunate and we need to help you and give you as much compassionate care as we can. But in order to remove the fetus, we would have to kill the fetus. We, we have to kill an innocent person to remove that person from your body. And that's just not something that we, we are permitted to do. That's not a lack of compassion on our part. It's an unwillingness to commit murder uh, for the benefit of somebody else. Yeah, that's, um, and um, for anybody that's watching, um, you know, this is, uh, as Clinton said, this is this is not something that, you know, pro-lifers take um, flippantly or lightly. This is a hard area to have to talk about, um, but it's something that needs to be talked about because at the end of the day, we still have innocent lives that are being taken. And the um, so with, you know, it, honestly, I meet lots of Christians um, who are pro-life except for rape or incest or, you know, these. And, and what I explained to them is I'm like, look, if you're going to have a consistent standard and a consistent philosophy, we can't allow you know, in these situations, as tragic as they are, it still doesn't follow that they're not an innocent human organism that deserves the basic right of living, you know. And so also in these situations, um, like you said, compounding the violence, it's just it's another violent act. And one of the points that um, that, you know, I bring up when we're talking about um, like in rape scenarios or something <laughs> like that is, uh, Oh, I hear you. Uh, <laughs> the, Sorry. That, that was my dog, uh, Roxy. I, I, no, I used the uh, microphone yeah. to prevent her from coming over the <laughs> mic. It's okay. Honestly, I, mine are right outside my uh, wall here and I'm usually having to mute mine in between because they won't shut up. But uh, yeah. So, <laughs> We're yeah, about- I mean, I'm guessing, a, I'm guessing, a, I'm guessing a leaf was rolling along the grass. That's where she was barking. <laughs> yeah. So when we're talking about this, um, I think something that doesn't get brought up the most, I mean, the most uh, enough is the studies mm-hmm. on mental health of women who have abortions. So when you have this, first of all, you usually hear them say, well, that's going to be a constant reminder. Well, I can tell you now, a woman that's been raped is not going to forget it anyway. You know, it's not it's, it's not something she just forgets because, you know, the, the, the fetus is gone. The child is gone. 
Um, it doesn't work like that. It's something that they live with their whole life and have to deal with. Well, when we look at the statistics of, you know, the rate of depression, the rate of suicide, the rate of uh, anxiety disorders, all these different things that follows from women who have had abortions, it seems like an abortion just compounds the difficulty she's going to have in the long run. And I hate how people pro-choice, you know, and not people specifically themselves, but organizations and things of that nature try to normalize, uh, you know, abortion as much as they can to make it not seem like us. And they literally gloss over and don't talk about the mental effects of it. And I've seen firsthand people I know who have dealt with and have said many, many years down the road after it's something they still struggle with. It's still, it's something they still deal with. And one of the person, one of the people happened to be close to me. And to this day, it was pro-choice. Even after having all of this uh, anguish from it and, and depression and, and dealing, uh, which obviously continues to bother her because she still talks about it, but still pro-choice. And I'm just, I'm blown away by it, but I, I hate how we don't talk about the mental health aspect enough of it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not too read up on the uh, mental health aspects. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the statistics are, but there are organizations you can look at uh, who do. I know there's a, um, you know, David Reardon who's written a book and, and several articles on mental health, but I've also heard from other pro-life, people that his work might not be the most rigorous. So you might need to take his work with a grain of salt. But um, when, when it comes to, uh, to, to the organizations that talk about the women who've been raped and, and their reactions to abortion and things like that, uh, one organization that does good work that I found is uh, Feminist for Life. They, they've you know, talked to women who've, who've been raped and who've had abortions and who rejected abortion after rape. And you know, oftentimes what they hear is that for a woman who, who kept the child instead of having the abortion, that the child is the only good thing to come out of the rape. Um, you know, th this is this is true uh, of any terrible situation in life. Uh, in fact, uh, Stephanie Gray Connors, who, who's a friend of mine, and you may be familiar with the name. Uh, she used to live in Canada, but she recently got married and uh, moved to Florida. So she's a so she's a Canadian American now. Um, but, uh, you know, she has uh, written about this, too, and, and talks about how when it comes to a situation in life, what matters is your perspective on it. And so if you're uh, if you're able to change your perspective, then suddenly a terrible situation can be a lot more bearable. And now, obviously, this, this is, you know, I'm not a counselor or a psychologist, so I can't tell anyone how to recover uh, after they've been raped, nor would I try to. But what we often see is that for, for women uh, who have been raped and who are able to receive counseling and understand that the child that resulted from the rape uh, is, is a second victim of the rape uh, because you know, he's been brought to existence uh, in, a, in, in a situation that's not ideal uh, because, you know, she was raped and, and it wasn't a loving situation between her and her uh, boyfriend or husband. Uh, so it's not an ideal situation he was brought to existence. But also uh, considering abortion, you're, you know, that takes the life of the child who it w was not in existence through any fault of his own. So, uh, so so if you understand that the child is another victim uh, of the rape and uh, 
uh, just understand that, uh, you know, a lot of women actually actually think that uh, keeping the child actually helped them to uh, to recover emotionally from the rape. And uh, like you say, it's, it's not something that they're ever going to be able to forget, but there are ways that they can learn to cope with it. And, and you know, like I said, I'm not a counselor or psychologist, so I wouldn't try to speak to that. That's something that they would need to see a licensed uh, psychologist for. Right. Absolutely. Great advice. Um, so kind of shifting gears a little bit. Um, you're a lot of people that are in the pro life are also bioethicists, which is uh, what you're into is the whole value of life from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. And um, today we are running into more and more people who are okay with, you know, assisted suicide and things of that nature. Um, so just, you know, if you could just, a a quick summary of some of the issues that we run into, uh, when we allow, you know, assisted suicide, or some people would refer to euthanasia, you know, things mm-hmm. of that nature. Yeah. Well, the, the thing to understand about assisted suicide and euthanasia is that the only difference between them is in how active the doctor is in your death. Uh, physician-assisted suicide, the doctor will prescribe pills, and then you go home and take them at your leisure. Um, and euthanasia is where the doctor actually, uh, you know, injects you with the lethal injection that uh, it, that ends your life. And so in that case, the doctor directly kills you as opposed to indirectly through assisted suicide. And so that leads a number of uh, people, you know, who write on the issue to say, you know, there really is no moral difference between assisted suicide and euthanasia because either way the doctor is killing you um so whether you're just doing it directly or indirectly the doctor is responsible for your death uh and then of course euthanasia has two different flavors there's voluntary euthanasia where when you're of sound mind you indicate that you want to you know be taken off life support or to have your life ended if you reach such a you know such a state uh and then there's involuntary euthanasia which often results from voluntary euthanasia. And involuntary euthanasia is just the doctor ends your life when he deems that your life is no longer worth living or uh, you know, you're know you taking up too much space in the hospital, they need the beds and things like that. Um, and you know, when you start giving doctors the, uh, the ability to make decisions over life and death, they start taking more of it. And that's just human nature. So, uh, you know, legalizing euthanasia and assisted suicide is actually dangerous because, uh, b- because of, you know, of the way that... Uh, that it often goes, that there is a slippery slope there, that legalizing voluntary euthanasia uh, often leads to involuntary euthanasia. And so so there are a couple of key questions about whether or not euthanasia is permissible. And that's number one, uh, you know, is suicide permissible? Uh, And if it is, that leads to a further question, is somebody else killing you when you want to die permissible? Because, you know, assisted suicide is not really an act of suicide. it's an act of the doctor killing you. So with physician-assisted suicide or with euthanasia, you're actually bringing a second party into your suicide. And you're not actually killing yourself. The other person is killing you. So, uh, you know, so, so that's a, a major issue with that as well, is that, you know, most people think suicide is, is wrong. But, you know, now we're bringing a second party into this act of suicide. Um, so that's one question. And then, of course, you know, the other question is, uh, is do we have a right to die? And if so, under what circumstances do we have a right to die? And it seems like I would say that no, there is no right to die because human beings have a right to life, and rights are uh, are inalienable, meaning that you can't take them away, but you also can't rightly give them away. So if there's a right to life, that means that there can't be a right to die because you don't have, you know, it's not permissible for you to frustrate 
uh, your, your rights. And so if you have a right to life, then killing yourself is actually a frustration of your right and a frustration of your ability to flourish in the way that humans ought to flourish. Um, you know, because, uh, you know, killing you is never a benefit to you. Even if you're suffering, uh, even if you're terminally ill, killing you is never a benefit. In fact, killing you is, is the ultimate harm that you can do to anybody. It, it doesn't become a benefit just because doctors can't heal you from your situation. So, you know, so killing you, uh, takes away any ability for you to ever get better. Um, and it also uh, negates any incentive for doctors to find a cure or a treatment, because if it's cheaper and easier to kill you, then that's the position that they'll go down, especially your insurance provider. And we have real-world examples of this, too. I think of uh, Randy Stroop, who, uh, who was uh, in, a citizen in Oregon, one of the first states in the U.S. to legalize assisted suicide. And... Uh, there was a documentary called How to Die in Oregon. And uh, you, can, you can actually find his interview on YouTube. And he talks about how he had cancer and he wanted to get chemotherapy to try and get it cured. Uh, his insurance company rejected his his uh, rejected his chemotherapy, but approved paying for suicide pills. Uh, and then once he went public with it, there was such an outcry about it that they finally uh, they finally greenlit his chemotherapy. Unfortunately, it didn't work, and he still ended up dying of the cancer. But the problem is that you know the doctor and the insurance company didn't even try. You know they just wrote him off and wouldn't give him the chemotherapy, but would actually uh, pay for his suicide pills. So uh, yeah, you know, there's just uh, a lot of things that are wrong with euthanasia from a moral perspective because it's wrong to kill people and uh, from a pragmatic perspective because the more doctors are able to kill, the more they'll take that privilege. And, uh, and not, not only that, but uh, if it's cheaper and easier to kill you, that's the route they'll go down. And not only does it uh, negate any ability for you ever to get better, but it also, uh, it also diminishes any incentive to find treatments or cures for these uh, ailments. Yeah, and for my... Uh fallacy scorekeepers out there uh slippery slope <laughs> is not always a fallacy you know because they're right. all yeah when we have actual um evidence that leads towards it or examples in the past it's it's not a fallacy so uh that's yeah that's one essentially yeah essentially a a a slippery slope is is not a fallacy if there's warrant for the slippery slope and there's right. most definitely warrant for this uh, slippery slope it's when they use it to go to extremes with it. So, um, right. you know, so yeah, that's, and that was my thing. I was actually having this conversation with my dad earlier um, because, you know, I I've had, you know, we've all had illnesses over time and um, you know, sometimes I'm sure most people has had one that they literally felt like they were dying, you know, it's just that bad. And and it's moments like that that can make you sympathize, you know, with yeah, your patients and things of that nature. So yeah, and, and here here's the thing too is that uh, you know nobody wants to die. That's not the natural state uh, of how you're living. Uh, so someone who's terminally ill and suffering only wants to die insofar as they are suffering. If you're able to alleviate their suffering, they no longer want to die. If you're able to manage it, and in the vast vast majority of cases, we're able to manage. Uh, pain medications, uh, even uh, you know, even if you have to just increase the dose to to uh, to you know make make the dose more potent, um, 
it, it, you know, that's that's something we can do too. And they've they've done studies in Oregon and Washington also who legalize assisted suicide. And uh, you know, like I think I believe if I'm remembering correctly, the number one reason that the, the people in the survey wanted to die was because they felt like they were being a burden to their family members. Mm. So it so you know, assisted suicide can also make people uh, choose suicide who wouldn't choose suicide otherwise because they feel like they're being a burden to the people by not going through with the suicide. Uh, and also, again, people who are suffering, uh, you know, want to uh, want want to kill themselves because they want you know they 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 don't want to die; they want the suffering to end. And so that that's the problem as well. And, and here's the thing: that even though we would say uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia are impermissible. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's always wrong to act in such a way that it's that the death of the patient is foreseeable. You must never intend the death of the of the patient, but if the death is is uh, is foreseen, that could be permissible. For example, if you're trying to treat someone's pain, but you know that increasing the pain medication will shorten the patient's life, it's still permissible to increase the dosage because number one, your intention is not to kill the patient. Your intention is not to shorten his life. Your intention is to ease his suffering. Uh, and, uh, and so since your intention is to ease the suffering, it's permissible to increase the dosage because even though you even though the shortening of his life will be foreseen, it's not intended by the doctor. So there, there's still situations in which you might act in such a way as to shorten the patient's life uh, in order to ease his, his suffering as well. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Um, you know, and that's something that people, a lot of people don't take into account, you know, intentionality, it, it means a lot. I mean, that's why we have degrees uh, when, you know, when people are killed, that's why we have manslaughter, you know, uh, murder one, murder two. It's because of the intentionality that's there. I mean, the intentionality makes all the difference in the world. So, you know, uh, kind of going back to pro-life, pro-choice arguments, you know, when we have to remove a fetus to save the life of a woman, we're not trying to kill the fetus. We're trying to save the life of the woman who at mm -hmm. that point is more viable because more than likely both of them are going to die. You know, it's rare that you get, uh, you know, a fetus that survives and not the mother. You know, it, it just it's usually it's both of them die. You know, so it's one of those things where we have to make a judgment of what's more valuable. But one of the points I wanted to kind of hone in on that that you brought up was a lot of people don't realize, you know, and I hate how politicized it got when they were talking about like a single payer uh healthcare system and all of that, you know, and I, I, I'm not getting into the politics, but what happens is the reality of it is we have quote unquote, and I hate the way that they, they, they sensationalize it so much, but we have death panels and they're already there with insurance companies. They have to make these judgments of, you know, who they're going to pay this money to, who gets, you know, when there's a lot. So when we turn that over to our government, and I'm not advocating, you know, for single payer or against it. I'm not speaking on that at all. But if it gets to the point where we do have our government with a single payer system or something like that, that's something we need to think about how inefficient, you know, our politicians handle money now. Do we really want them making the decisions and who gets to live or who gets money, you know, to keep them living uh, versus those who can't. And these are all the scenarios that we get into when we start talking about assisted uh, suicide, euthanasia and all these different things is, you know, it's going to be a lot cheaper 
to, uh, you know, give to have an assisted suicide than it is to actually, you know, keep them alive and give them the medical that they need. And this kind of takes me right. into the next point, and that's the um, uh, vegetated, vegetative and persistent vegetative states. And I think a lot of people don't realize that we actually have people that come out of these states. You know, I mean, there's on a persistent vegetative. I'm, I, I haven't looked at the numbers in a long time, but I think it's a really small number. But we still have people that do yeah, come out. Yeah, it's not something you should. Yeah, it's not something you should expect to happen, but it is something that happens. Uh huh. But yeah, and so yeah, in fact, that's a, that's a difference that's important in this in this discussion too. Is uh, a persistent vegetative state is different from brain death. Now, brain death is a misnomer uh, because if if you're you know brain dead, you're not actually dead. You're still alive. Uh, you're dying. But scientists and doctors can still keep your body alive artificially, and that's in fact that's how they do organ donations. They keep your body alive with life support, and then uh, take your organs out. But you're still a living human being at that point. Um, just like you are in a persistent vegetative state. Now, in a persistent vegetative state, you've lost all of your um, all of your higher brain functions, but your lower brain functions are still functioning. So you're so in a persistent vegetative state, you're still able to do a few things. You know, you're able to. Uh, oh, it's, uh, I, you know, I hope I don't get one of my facts wrong. Is uh, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we just uh, we just uh, you know decided on doing this podcast last night uh, tonight. So uh, I didn't get a chance to look at the actual uh, the actual thing. But if, if I recall correctly, uh, you know, things like I, I believe. Uh, Someone in a persistent vegetative state can, can breathe on their own. They can swallow. Uh, they can blink their eyes, uh, and, and they can move through uh, through stages of wakefulness and sleep. So, uh, so you know, so there's still some stuff going on there. But you know, they're not able to feed themselves. Uh, they're not able to to get up out of bed. They're not able to you know use the restroom on their own things like that. Um, so, someone in a persistent vegetative state is still a living human being. And yeah, there have been rare occasions in which someone has come out of it. But also, people in persistent vegetative states have lived for twenty or thirty years in that uh, in that state. So uh, someone who's in that state is still a living human being. Uh, and so they still they still have, you know, we still have obligations to treat them as such. And if you're going to turn someone in a persistent vegetative state into a cadaver, you have to kill them. Um, you know, you starve them or give them an injection or something, but you have to kill them in order to turn them into a cadaver. They're still a living human being who can still live for decades, even in the state they're in. Someone who is brain dead is dying and will die if you allow nature to take its course. You know, like when they turn you off of life support and your your body just kind of shuts down and then you die. Uh, you know, so you're in a state of dying. And so the reason they call it brain death is is because essentially uh, doctors use that state in order to justify removing your organs and, uh, you know, giving them to people who need replacements. So, yeah, yeah you know, those are important things. To, that's an important distinction to keep in mind too, is the distinction between a persistent vegetative state right. and brain death. Yeah. And, you know, um, I knew you were a champ and you got all this, so it didn't matter if it was two hours before I knew you could handle it. But uh, <laughs> oh so, no, it's fine. Yeah. I, I, just wanted to, I wanted to you know, just in case I happened to get a just in case I happened to get a fact wrong. I wanted to make that that qualification. Yeah, uh, but no, because actually, you know, one of the yeah one one of the one of the most gratifying things about my speeches is I I often do have uh, nurses and doctors in attendance, and every time I've asked them after after a talk will come up and and you know talk with me a little bit, and I'll 
I'll ask them if I got all my facts right. And, you know, every time they say, yeah, you, you got it. So that, that makes me, that, that helps me, you know, keep, keep me on the, on the yeah, right track yeah, because, uh, you know, I have the doctors and nurses telling me that I've got my, my facts correct. So, uh, you know, hopefully that'll help with my credibility. Yeah. I appreciate you putting that qualifier in there because, uh, I can attest that, uh, you, you know, and I, I don't mean this in any kind of flattery, but uh, you are very um, intellectually honest and humble person. Uh, and I think you showed that in the podcast with uh, Cameron Bertuzzi when you agreed to go oh. on an absolute giant in <laughs> annihilationism. <laughs> but it, hey, man. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I went on and. Go ahead. No, oh, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say I watched. No, the I was whole just going to say yeah. I was. Uh, I went on the other. Oh, I'm. So, we we definitely have a delay. <laughs> Go ahead, man. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was just going to say I went on there. Yeah, to have a discussion with Chris Date, and just about everyone I talked to said, you know, he really knows his stuff. Make sure you prepare. And so I, I prepared as much as I could. And man, yeah, like his his depth of knowledge on that issue. Even though I think he's wrong, uh, his depth of knowledge on that issue is very <laughs> impressive. So yeah. Well, I must say, um, he convinced me. So I went into annihilationism, oh, yeah? oh. kicking and screaming, you yeah. know, because I, I, you know, I like to hold to kind of what I consider traditional things. So, but uh, yeah, uh, back. So anyway, uh, thanks for the qualifier. Yes, I did spring this on him last minute because we were supposed to do it last week. And I had a whole right. bunch of stuff happen, and I just couldn't do it. But yeah. he's a champ. Yeah, no, no, I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not like complaining or anything. I'm happy. To no, 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 I, I know. I, I know. I, know. I just, yeah, right. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, and like I said, I mean, it, I, honestly, I mean, you're you're a really intellectually humble guy. That's why. I, uh, just about anything. I mean, you know, I don't stalk you, but if I see something and you're on <laughs> right. there talking about it, you know, a lot of times I watch it. Yeah. I spend a whole lot of time watching a lot of podcasts, YouTube shows, and all this stuff now because there's so much great content out there now. Um, but with the, uh, like we were talking about with, you know, and uh, I wanted to kind of touch back on that real quick was, you know, so for my understanding is I believe it's the brainstem or the, the back or lower part of the brain that is involved with involuntary functions such as breathing and things of this nature. So when you're talking about higher order, you're mm -hmm. the lower order would be the involuntary, right? And then the higher order would be like the reasoning and things of that nature. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So the higher order brain function is lost, but your, your lower order brain function is retained when you're in a persistent vegetative state which is why you know, you're able to continue breathing and, and swallowing and things like that. Uh, but when you're brain dead, you've irreversibly lost all of your brain functions, higher and lower. And, you know, you need your brain to, uh, uh, to regulate all of your, you know, organs and everything in your body. So your, your body starts to shut down at that point and there's no way to come out of it. If, if the doctor proclaims that you were brain dead and you came out of it, uh, you were misdiagnosed. <laughs> so yeah. just, to be, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, just to be frank there, but uh, yeah. So yeah, you know, and, doctors, and you know, doctors are, are human too. Uh, you know, doctors are human too, and so they, you know, they make mistakes, and you know, that's just that's just Absolutely. part of life. So, you know, they, they could misdiagnose things too. They they do their best, but they they can't always, you know, uh, you know, stuff happens, and sometimes they, you know, misdiagnose things. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, you know, this is a discussion I've had with my wife before. Um, you know, HVAC was my background and now I work on, you know, power equipment for data centers. And I tell her, you know, when you see so many different symptoms of something, you are, mm-hmm. you feel like into intuitionally, you know, automatically what's wrong. And most times you're right, but you always get mm-hmm. that trouble equipment and you have to kind of go through a process mm-hmm. of elimination, you know, and, uh, they're like mechanics with an extremely complex machine, mm. you know, so uh, they right. can't get it right all the time. There's a lot of human error. And, and most mm. people don't realize as much as we know about the human anatomy and modern medicine and all these different things, uh, there is a we, we don't know far more than what we do know. And mm. so that's what I was going to one of the things I wanted to get at was like with yeah. consciousness you know, when we're talking about vegetative states, persistent vegetative states, a lot of people have to understand that we don't know what's going on inside that subjective experience. You know, what qualia is there because we can only measure certain activities and, um, you know, that's going on in the brain. So we really don't know what that subjective experience is. It's there. Yeah. And what I find bizarre is that scientists are still discovering new bones in the body too. You know, you'd think with uh, all the times that doctors go in and operate on people, it's like they know everything that's in there, but uh, they still occasionally make new discoveries about what's inside the body. You know, I just, yeah. So there's still always new things, you know, new things to learn, even, uh, you know, even in, even in things like uh, just, you know, what kind of organs and and bones are in the human body. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, uh, you know, back in the um, going back with the the abortion um, pro-choice pro-life thing is mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of people with these uh, personhood arguments. They rely a lot on neuroscience. And I'm like, mm-hmm. man, you really need to look into neuroscience. One, we don't know a lot of what we think we know. Uh, not only that, and, and I'm and, and I don't mean this. This is my disclaimer. OK, I'm a science person. And I, so I don't mean this in any anti-science way, but neuroscience has been extremely plagued with uh, inaccurate articles and, and, and findings because it's like a race to peer review. You know, and unfortunately, this is one of the fields that because it's such a cutting edge new technology field, a lot of people race out there. You know, they had this idea that certain no, chemicals had one function. Done. Done. Good job. <laughs> we had they had this idea this that chemicals all had you know they were stuck on this single idea that chemicals had one function and now we've mm-hmm. gone back and realized hey these chemicals play massive roles in the body that's not just one function well for everyone that serotonin neuroepinephrine uh dopamines all these different neurotransmitters that were supposedly you know one function maybe two they're having to retract a lot of that from like the eighties and nineties, because now we realize that it's, uh, there's so much more involved in it. And there's still so much more that we don't know. But so with all that said, uh, we're getting, we just over the hour mark. So we got to get to the important questions. Okay. What is on, what music is on your iPhone right now? Oh, uh, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a classically trained musician, so I actually like a wide variety of music. 
you know, I listen to classical, I listen to rock and roll, especially classic rock. Um, and so I, I also like the best of both worlds, progressive rock, uh, which is, you know, I, I kind of consider the press progressive rock bands kind of the uh, orchestras of today, even though we have some wonderful orchestras around who are performing music and of course still new music being composed uh in classic in the classical field but uh so I, on my on my ipod i have a band called glass hammer which is um you know a progressive rock a christian progressive rock band who actually a lot of their their uh, music is inspired by literature like jrr tolkien c.s lewis um right. you know uh, fantasy authors and, and sometimes they write their own original materials stories too uh, Neil Morris and his various bands, like Neil Morris Band and Transatlantic, uh, are on there. Uh, Kansas, my, one of my all-time favorite bands. Uh, you know, they. Um, I've got their. I've got their three latest. Uh, their three latest albums. Uh, Somewhere to Elsewhere, uh, The Absence of Presence, and uh, what was there? The, the the one between that. Uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it, but the, those three albums and a couple of live albums are on my iPod. So, you know, I've got quite a bit of uh, progressive rock on there. Yeah, so I want everybody to know, okay, uh, because one of the shows, I did it. Well, now it's Clinton. I said iPhone. He said iPod. So he's the old cat here, not me. <laughs> oh, but <laughs> sorry. Uh, you know, actually, I, I do have, actually, I do have it on my iPhone. Uh, but uh, I, I got yeah, a lot of rift you know. for saying iPod. Um, on one of my shows when I asked somebody that, and I was like, wow, that's right. iPod, who has an iPod, you know? So, and also, uh, for a lot of people who don't know, um, Clinton is extremely musically talented himself. So not only is he this handsome devil over here with a gorgeous beard, first of all, you're the first beard to rival mine. Yet, and there was already comments out there about you know, hey man, would they do it? finally? It's usually it's my beard they're talking about, and they're talking about yeah. yours. So you got something done tonight. Oh. But I did see a video yeah. that you put on Facebook, you playing piano and singing, and I was just I was stunned. I mean, not that I didn't I didn't know what to expect, and you really blew me away. And I think I mean, bro, you've got a fantastic uh singing voice and along with the man see i do vocals and a lot of people don't know that i do vocals yeah. but i do it for me i don't do it publicly i don't send it out it's a passion of mine i love it i have recording equipment i got a dig digital audio workstation and all that because that's one of my releases i love vocals i love music and i yeah. kind of just let it all out there so i was extremely impressed man you did a fantastic job Oh, thanks. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, because those were just kind of something I threw together uh, w without much without much practice. Uh, I just kind of learned them and did them. Uh, I do perform live uh, with, with bands, oh. and then of course I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time rehearsing the music before going live. But uh, yeah, so you know, yeah, I, I really consider myself more a live performer than a than a uh, recording uh, performer because I do not like my voice recorded. Uh, so I, 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 I think <laughs> hey, lot, I think it's done a lot better live than recorded. I actually so when I first started doing when I first got all of this recording equipment and mm -hmm. I started recording my singing because I wanted to improve it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. You know, so or my voice was terrible, not the singing. I knew, you know, I, a lot of people don't realize that almost mm -hmm. everybody can sing because your voice is an instrument. 
You just have to learn how yeah. to play the instrument and take care of it properly. And so while I'm recording, right. I'm like, man, what? So my wife's like, you sound fantastic. And I'm like, what are you hearing? So I actually Googled it and there's, and it's actually a common phenomenon is when people hear their voices recorded, they're so used to their head voice that when they hear their voice, they can't believe it sounds like that. And it takes a long time to get used to that uh, recorded sound that you're not used to hearing. So yeah. yeah, And the thing is, uh, yeah. And you know, my, my voice, my speaking voice is a lot higher than I'm, than I'm comfortable with. I wish I had a deeper voice. Uh, But uh, you know, when I was at my old church, I I attended a Lutheran church, uh, and we, we had a, a vocal teacher there, and he actually gave me a few vocal lessons. Uh, and yeah, he basically said, you know, uh, you, you speak in your singing voice, which is actually which is actually good, uh, you know. So I, I guess I guess I can't complain because uh, it's it's the range that I sing in. So I, well, I guess it's I'll tell you this: there's so. no such thing as the curse of the soprano or the alto or any of that because mm-hmm. that's the voice everybody wants to hear. What you have a the curse is the baritone, which is exactly where my range is. So I have Uh, to I have to work like really hard to increase that range because there's very few people that sound. I mean, you're you're just not going to go mainstream with a deep singing voice. It just there's only very few people that do that. So, yeah, not unless you're uh, Matt Powell. (laughs) Yeah. Or it's uh, who's the guy does the old man river. Oh man, river, you know. So unless yeah. you're somebody that's super special, it's not happening. Right. But yeah. um, yeah. So all right, and the last question is that I have for mm-hmm. you, and this is for my personal interest. Um, okay. who is your favorite theologian? Uh, what do you consider a theologian? Mm. Yeah, let's that gum. <laughs> let's make it a little easier. Who's your favorite preacher, pastor? Oh, um, you know, I don't actually listen to a lot of pastors. Uh, I don't because either. you know I, I get my I get my preaching. What, what's that? I said I don't oh, either. You know, so. I, oh, <laughs> yeah, because you know I get my preaching on Sunday morning, and then. When I listen to someone talk about you know the word, I want I want them to go deeper. So I like to you know listen to philosophers and and you know yeah. theologians, people who uh, you know are like you know conversant with the early church and and that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, so I guess you know because I don't really have you know I, you know there's some preachers I've heard of like you know Billy Sunday and uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, but I, I don't know if I necessarily call myself a fan of theirs. So if I just use my my own uh, my own kind of definition of theologian, um, I mean you know C.S. Lewis wasn't really a theologian, but he was very theologically inclined uh, and very philosophical too. Uh, so he's he's definitely my favorite author of the 20th century. Um, you know, uh, I mean William Lane Craig. Uh, I don't agree oh. with everything he believes. Uh, in, in fact, there are a lot of things that uh, that Craig, Dr. Craig, would take issue with me because uh, I'm a hylomorphist. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but he definitely has had a really great impact with the church. Uh, so, yeah, those are a couple of my favorite uh, theologians. Yeah, that's fantastic because I actually lean heavily to hylomorphism. Um, I think substance okay. dualism has, you know, some issues that we just don't have good explanations for. And I'm obviously not going to be a physicalist. So, 
Um, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Although uh, Chris Date, uh, Chris Date is a physicalist. <laughs> really? As is, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, I heard Glenn that Eagles. in the conversation. So how does? It, I mean, just real quick, how does that work? How how is one? I, I think he even went as far as to say he was a materialist, didn't he? I think so. And yeah, that, that's part of the issue is part of our disagreement was, you know, I, I'm a hylomorphist, which means I believe in an eternal soul. And Chris doesn't. He's a physicalist. So, you know, if you get resurrected, he believes that you'll get burned up in hell. I believe you won't because you have an eternal soul that's not going to die while you're there. And so I think that's something that we would need to. And, and that's more more my wheelhouse, too, because I, you know, I, I'm involved in bioethics which you know questions of identity and the soul and things like that are very important to to that issue so you know so i told cameron and, and chris look maybe we should come back and, and debate physicalism versus hylomorphism or something uh you know that that'd be more you know i'd be a lot uh, better in that kind of a situation too but yeah so you know I, i'm not entirely sure you know you'd have to ask chris about all yeah. of that related to that but i think that's a big part of it in that he doesn't believe in an eternal soul so that's why you know the body would get burned up in the fires of hell um you know whereas i, I believe in an eternal cell soul so i don't think it, it will but i think well i wouldn't yeah. i think from my understanding i would say he doesn't he's conditional in more immortality so there right, is immortality. yeah yeah so uh, he does believe in eternal soul for heaven, just not right, right. for hell. Yeah, because that's kind of where I'm at. And if if he didn't believe in eternal soul it, for at least for heaven, then I'd have to bounce out for me. So yeah, no, no, yeah, he definitely, yeah, he, he's a conditional immortality okay. guy. So he definitely believes in in eternal life for Christians. Yeah, yeah. So I don't normally address the chat during the show. But uh, somebody had the audacity to say that one of uh, somebody's favorite theologian, I'm sure it's a joke because it's atheist Frank, he's a real cool oh. guy. But uh, he said <laughs> Ken Hovind. Oh, I'm familiar with. <laughs> yeah, you know, there, there was a time that I there was a time that I was actually into uh, Answers in Genesis for a while. Uh, I because I used to be a young earth creationist, I'm no longer too. Yeah, William Lane Craig has actually changed my mind on that. Um, you know, because I, I agreed that I think scientifically the evidence for an old earth is a lot stronger than the evidence for a young earth, it was just the scriptural uh issues that I had to hang up with. And Dr. Craig uh really helped me see, uh, you know, how an old earth uh perspective can make sense of of the texts that young earth creationists use. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with allowing scientific discoveries to affect our view of scripture. Like we do when we talk about Joshua and the sun standing still in the sky mm -hmm. and things like that, as long as they're, you know, cause obviously, you know, there, there are exceptions to it. You know, things that are clearly taught in scripture, we, we can't just avoid because, you know, us, we like a scientific explanation better, but, uh, you know, considering that Genesis 1, you know, was written originally in Hebrew and, uh, you know, the day could have different meanings. You know, we're not locked into uh, a belief in a young earth. In fact, even those even uh, early church fathers um, who didn't have the scientific advancements of today would say, you know, it, it's not necessarily, you know, we're, we're not committed to a young earth view uh, based on Genesis 1. So, yeah, yeah, so um man, I it, that, that is just crazy how many similarities we have. It's uh so yeah. uh I was actually a young earth creationist at one time and I advocated for it and fought for it vehemently. 
you know, and I don't know if you're familiar with Hank Hanegraaff, but that's who changed my yeah. position. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so actually, he, I've actually, I've actually published a few articles for the uh, Christian Research Journal. Oh, that's right. I, and I've actually oh. read your articles there for Christian okay. Research Institute. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. I saw some. Yeah, I did see some. So yeah. he, um, what got me was uh, the, I think it was 19... 85 or 87 a supernova and what front and what he had said was um so it's like uh 600,000 light years away so it took 600,000 uh, years for us to be able to or the light to travel to earth for us to be able to view the supernova that happened 600,000 years ago well that totally dumped six to ten thousand years immediately and unless God created the world with the appearance of age, which I was okay with at the time. But then he said the conundrum yeah, is. Yeah, the appearance of age uh, view was how I got, got around uh, things like that. that. That was my position. Right. Well, so he brought up this conundrum. He said, if you hold to um, the uh, appearance of age view, well, then one. Uh, we're borderline talking about God being a deceiver because he tell us he tells us to look to the heavens for his majesty and his handiwork and all these things. So if they look old, but they're really not old, then we're being misled about it. Um, and his wasn't as radical as that. It was a lot more humble than that. And the other one was right. uh, the second uh, issue is. How do we, if everything was created with the appearance of age, how do we know we weren't created last week with all of these memories and knowledge imprinted in our heads? And I'm like, wow, that does make a lot of sense. How do we know that? You know, if we're going to take yeah. that view, that's really what got me, you know, moving away from. And then what, it, what he also said was, this was the biggest thing that he had said. If, um, Young Earth creationism wasn't true. Does that affect who Jesus is or what he did? Uh, and I was like, wow. Yeah, no, it really does. It just affects my interpretation of scripture, you know, right. and so that's what kind of got me moving out of that. But yeah, uh, and, you know, believers in the Young Earth view can also uh, push people away from scripture too. Uh, from, push people away from God by, uh, you know, proclaiming that you have to be a young earth creationist if you're a Christian, because, you know, that's the only possible interpretation you can get from scripture. And, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're not letting God speak for himself. You're trusting man's word over God if you try to go with an old earth interpretation. So, you know, there, there's that kind of issue too, is that, uh, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. So, Clinton, man, thank you so much for coming on here. I appreciate you spending yeah, the time pleasure. with us and your expertise. And, you know, uh, so may, so everybody understands this is not meant to be flattery, but uh, Clinton has actually been a huge inspiration on my uh, – because I've always been really into pro-life stuff. My wife will tell you. My wife – I'm 42 – um, my wife and I got married when I was 21 and we've been together since I'm, I was 16. So she's seen every Avenue of me, every 52 shades of me, because I'm ADD 
as it gets also. So I'm like, yeah, 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 you know, on topics and things like that. So she's followed me all the way, you know, like uh, chasing kids through a grocery store. She's like, bro, slow down, slow down. But uh, <laughs> she'll tell you. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, being for, being in the same philosophy groups, being friends on Facebook and just, you know, uh, reading a lot of the things that you did and uh, Clinton, like I am, is uh, mostly self-taught. And that to me is extremely admirable because going down that road myself, I know how hard it is. Um, yeah, it also so, means uh, it's very, very hard to find work <laughs> when you don't have those uh, degrees. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of the issue I'm having right now where I work. I've been at yeah. my company for like for 14 years and I put in for the next job up and it's a whole bunch of people with degrees, you know, hiring for that position. And it's like, dang, I don't have a degree. And it's, so it doesn't matter have all that experience because, which I understand, you know, if you have a foundational knowledge to build upon and the experience, I can't argue with them. So they got to do what's best for the company. But, um, so I've admired your work. Um, like I said, you're a intellectually humble guy. You're humble over overall. Uh, really appreciate that. And I am uh, uh, so happy and thankful that you came on here to spend time with us. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on here to, to chat for a while. Yeah, absolutely. We are definitely going to have you back at some point if your schedule allows uh, I know you're going through that whole move and everything. I won't dox you, but I know you <laughs> left California where you were like yeah. almost on welfare because of their taxes. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, yeah, actually, uh, yeah, it's it a little, little uh, nerve wracking of a move because, you know, I was working. I was actually working doing music for my church. Uh, and now that I've moved, I don't have any steady income coming in right now. Uh, oh, so wow. you know, I'm trying to find. And I, I'm trying to find work that I can do from home uh, because I'm, the reason that I moved here, I moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico. And the reason that I moved here is to homeschool my nieces, which means that I'm not going to be able oh. to get a standard nine to five job and be able to homeschool them. So I'm trying to find work doing music. Uh, I, I have a couple leads that I've got here in town and I'm trying to find other work that I can do from home too. things like transcription work and things like that on top of the pro-life work that I do. Because if, if I, right. if I'm able to, to get a place to bring me out to speak, you know, I, I can charge a stipend and, uh, travel expenses but uh for the most part you know uh you know i mean you know as long as there are you know people who are a lot more popular in the movement you know you got your scuck losing you got your josh brom uh you know all those kinds of guys who are like you know monsters in the movement and you know they're they're in high demand a little, little bit more difficult for someone like me to to find steady work doing that but uh yeah, yeah. So if I have anybody listening that's in the Las Cruces, New Mexico area, which I've actually been there um, with oh, yeah? my company. Yeah, with my company, I, I have traveled all around the U.S. except the Pacific Northwest. And I've spent oh. way too much time in California, um, <laughs> every spot of California. But I got stuck in um, El Paso, Texas, working at uh, Fort Bliss for like a two week job. And since I was stuck there over the weekend, I took a cruise through New Mexico and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna find okay. some mountains. And 
yeah, I didn't find mountains for like until I got to Las Cruces, <laughs> and it was like, and that's not much of mountains, you know. So <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, being from California, I, I can tell you about mountains. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, uh, you're welcome, Amber. I'm assuming that's your wife, Amber Croom. Yeah, that's her. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. In, you know, California. There's mountains all over the place, and uh, yeah. In fact, uh, to get to to get to Las Cruces, you know, you can't just drive as the crow flies. If you could, it, you know, it'd be a lot shorter. But as it is, it takes uh, t- takes about uh, seven or eight hours to get get out of California because I was right in the middle of, of California. But I had to drive over uh, mountains through most of it. So yeah, we've got we got some mountain ranges in in California. You got to go to the White Sands uh, missile testing area while you're there. I've been to White Sands. Uh, I don't know if I've been to the oh. testing area, though. Oh, so, okay. I'm sorry. I got to tell this story real quick before you go. Um, okay. I was in El Paso, right? And I was stuck for the weekend. So I'm like, I'm going to take a cruise through New Mexico, see what's over there, try to find some mountains or something. So I'm yeah. driving down I-10, and I didn't know that far away from the border, they had border checkpoints. And oh, yeah. so I'm so I'm driving down 10 and all of a sudden I see this huge pavilion on the side and there's like little, you know, cameras or whatever, just this, all these gadgets on the side of it. And the interstate was blocked and you had to go on over. So I go on into it and it's a border checkpoint. And so as I come in, the guy says, uh, where are you headed? And I was like, nowhere in particular. Well, that was strike one. <laughs> and then he said, uh, he said, is this your car? I said, it's a rental. That was strike two. And then he was like, can you pop the trunk and, and let me look inside of it? You know, this is a, this is a border patrol dressed like a soldier. And so I yeah. popped the trunk. I had my tools and my duffel safety bag in there. That was strike three. And he said, uh, he said, I need you to pull over here on the side for a minute. And let me tell you something. Okay. I really feel minorities when they have to go through this because as a white guy, I was scared to death. I was like, please don't let this be like some drug smugglers rental car who left something in there or something. They put the dog in the car and let him run all around in the car and stuff. And I'm like, and then finally Paul popped out. He said, um, you're free to go. <laughs> and I was just like, that was crazy. That was one hell of an experience. I don't want to do that again. Right. So yeah, uh, you know, Las Cruces, Las Cruces is real close to the Mexico border. And so, yes. yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause like, uh, you know, going, uh, going down, uh, I-10 toward Arizona, you'll hit border patrol, uh, going up I-70 toward Alamogordo, you'll hit border control, uh, border patrol. And, uh, yeah, they're just, they're all over the place. So, yeah. So yeah. for anybody who has an issue with like minorities being freaked out that, you know, soldiers are, or, or what looks like soldiers is, you know, searching their vehicle. I was, so it's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of things that kind of goes through your head. Uh, so Clinton, uh i wish you the best i hope you mm. find a steady bit of work i'll be praying for you um i, I really appreciate you coming on here sharing your knowledge with us and things like that and i would definitely like to have you on again for sure yeah definitely thank you again for having me oh yeah absolutely no problem man um i will talk to you later and i am going to see all these people out
All right. All right, bud. So that was Clinton Wilcox. Uh, I would say a friend, but we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking personally. But like I said in the beginning, he had a huge impact on I was really interested in uh, pro-life philosophy, things of this nature. And he was one of the first people that I ran across that uh, really had an academic level understanding or arguments for the pro-life position. And when I got turned on to that, I was like, whoa, check this out. And when I really found out that the, you don't have to take a theistic argument, because while I am a Christian, I think it's important to have arguments that can relate across the board. You know, whether somebody's agnostic, atheist, different religion, you know, whatever it is, we need arguments that everybody can understand. Um and through Clinton, you know, I have, you know, run across people like Scott Klusendorf and Francis J. Beckwith and all these people that he has, you know, recommended to me. And they are fantastic scholars uh, on these issues. So if you get a chance or you're interested in it, check them out. Check out Clinton at uh, Life Training Institute. He does some writing for Secular Pro-Life. And I'll tell you personally, stupid microphone. Uh, I'll tell you personally that uh, Secular Pro-Life has a lot of good stuff over there. So if you think it's just a Christian or theistic thing uh, for pro-life, I know quite a few atheists that are pro-life. And Secular Pro-Life is exactly what the name says, Secular Pro-Life. And they have a massive group over there. Um, also, check this out. So you've seen me sipping on this. Uh, look at that. I am fixing to have merchandise, at least stupid autofocus, at least for me to look cool on the show. Uh, but I'm also going to have links there. So just in case you think I'm cool enough or my show's cool enough that you want to rock some of my gear, it'll be there. Uh, I appreciate everybody hanging out with us. It's been fantastic. I love this discussion. Um, and, you know, I am so humbled by I don't care. You know, like right now it says I got six viewers. I don't care because I know there are lots of people who's going to watch this later may learn something. And it's not the people that's watching now. And it's not the people that's talking that always makes a difference. Um, it's those, or did you make a difference too? It's those who, what we call lurkers that were a lot of times that's where we make the difference. And I know that because I'm a former lurker. I spent a lot of time in a philosophy group, had no idea where to start, didn't know half the words they were using, and I just read and hung around and read and hung around and ended up getting in, interested in something I didn't think I would ever get interested in. Um, so I appreciate everybody that was here. Everybody hit the thumbs up button. Everybody that subscribed. If you haven't, make sure you subscribe. Uh, Thursday night. I'm going to have T-Jump on, uh, Tom Jump, if you're not familiar. Uh, he's a fantastic debater, rhetorician. He's, I mean, he's he's got all of it. Um, he's a cool guy, and I think we're going to have fun. It's not going to be any debating or anything like that, uh, but we're going to find a lot more out about T-Jump than we've known before. I can guarantee you that. So I appreciate you hanging out. Thank you so much. 
I'm so humbled. Have a good evening. Um, and if you're a Christian, pray for Clinton uh, that he gets a steady job with income coming in because that's a serious uh, issue, especially with a huge move like that. I mean, that's just we got to get the man paid. If you're in uh, Las Cruces, anywhere around there, hook him up. Good night. Thank you. Peace out. See you later next time.